Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss how to escape the feedback loop from hell, the paradoxical idea of embracing negative experiences, why struggle creates meaning, how to discover the false values underpinning your worldview, and how to cultivate the ability to sustain and handle adversity with Mark Manson. Because the science of success has spread across the globe with more than 500,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new noteworthy and more, I give away something awesome to my listeners every single month. This month, I'm giving away a $100 Amazon gift card to one lucky listener. All you have to do to be entered to win is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, text the word SMARTER to the number 44222 to be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. And if you want to win 10, yes, 10 extra entries into the giveaway, all you have to do is leave a positive review on iTunes and email me a screenshot of the review to matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. Next episode, we'll be giving away the next Amazon gift card, so you definitely want to enter into the contest. In our previous episode, we explored the mental game of world champion performers. Examine the emotional issues preventing you from achieving what you want to achieve. How those issues happen in predictable patterns that you can discover and solve. Looked at why people choke under pressure and discuss how to build mental toughness with mental game coach Jared Tendler. If you want to take your mental game to the next level, listen to that episode. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Mark Manson. 
Mark is a blogger, author, and entrepreneur, most well-known for his site, markmanson.net, where he writes about personal development advice that doesn't suck. He also recently wrote a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. It doesn't suck either. Mark, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's good to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on. Uh, so tell us a little bit about kind of your background. Uh, so I started in 2008, I believe. Um, I started a couple of internet businesses, internet projects. And at the time I was, you know, back in 2008, 2009, blogs were like all the rage. So if you wanted to have a website and you wanted to get traffic, everybody was always screaming at you to start a blog. Now, blogs were the way of the future. So I started some blogs and it turned out, it took me about two years to figure out that I wasn't actually very good at the internet businesses, but I was really good at blogging. And so I just kept writing. And I soon kind of found myself in this weird situation where lots of people would email me uh, for questions and advice. So I started just kind of writing about life advice and tried to bring like a little bit of a new take. Like I basically, I wanted to be like a self-help site that wasn't self-help. And that was always a weird, interesting challenge. But um, things started to take off around 2012, 2013. And uh, here I am today, what I'm still doing. Well, I really enjoyed kind of almost the irreverence of of your book. Uh, and I started laughing immediately. Uh, even the very first chapter, I believe, is called Don't Try. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell the listeners that story. So the, the Don't Try, it's actually a reference to Charles Bukowski. And I open up the book with him because he's like, he's, he's basically, he's like the worst life example you would ever want. To, to give anybody you know the guy was a total alcoholic uh he wasted all of his money he was like constantly getting arrested and doing inappropriate things um he would famously get drunk at his own poetry readings and like just start insulting people in the crowd but it's funny because he actually after like struggling as a writer for like 30 years he made it big he sold millions of copies of his books and he became his a quote-unquote success so I, I always found it interesting that kind of his story is always fascinated in that, like on paper, he's this huge literary success. But uh, as a person, he's like, you, you wouldn't even you probably wouldn't even like want to get coffee with him because you, you would just be so repelled by his personality. But the interesting thing about him is that despite this kind of like classic American dream story of him like persisting for 30 years and writing poet poem poem and poem and stories and stories and stories and like finally breaking through in his 50s and becoming a huge success his last message and actually it's engraved on his tombstone is don't try and i wanted to put that out there in the book because one of the central points i try to make is that if you're always trying to be happier that simple act of trying is just reminding yourself that you're not good enough already. And if you're always trying to be more confident or you're always trying to be more liked by people, then the simple act of trying is going to reinforce the idea that you're not already. And so you, there's this weird paradox with self-help stuff where the more people chase a result, in many ways, the more they prevent their own psychology from achieving it. And so I wanted to lay that out in the first chapter and basically kind of introduce to the idea the to people the idea that this book is going to be a self-help book that basically tells you don't go after more but rather give a fuck about less you know let go of things stop trying so hard and just focus on the few 
most crucial and important things. I love the idea, and, and I'm curious to kind of hear more about it, the concept that focusing on the positive kind of reinforces the negative. Tell me a little bit more. So there's this idea. I originally heard about it from, from Alan Watts. Uh, he called it the backwards law, but you see it pop up in a lot of places, which is the more you pursue some sort of positive experience, that very act of pursuing it is itself a negative experience. So if you're always trying to be richer, like make more money, then what you're doing is you're creating a state in yourself of always feeling like you don't have enough. If you're trying to be more beautiful or better looking all the time, then you're always creating this state within yourself where you feel like you're not beautiful or good looking enough. Conversely, the acceptance of a negative experience, like accepting some sort of pain and struggle in your life is itself a very liberating and positive experience. So that moment when you kind of realize like, you know what, maybe I'm not going to be like the next billionaire, but that's okay. I don't need to be a billionaire, you know, to have a, a happy and successful life. That thought in and of itself, even though, you know, a lot, a big portion of our cultural narrative would call that like failure or giving up, that is a very liberating experience. And it's actually far more emotionally healthy, I think, than the alternative. And so the whole book kind of starts out with this, this idea of like a negative approach to improving your life. You don't improve your life by gaining more positive experience. You, you improve your life through becoming okay with negative experience. I'm a huge Alan Watts fan, by the way, and, I, and longtime listeners will know that. So uh, changing directions a little bit, I'm curious, what is the feedback loop from hell? And how would you describe it? And how can you possibly sort of short circuit it or break out of it? So the feedback loop from hell is, it's this idea where it essentially stems from when we judge our own emotions. So, you know, let's say you're a person that gets anxious very often and you would like to be less anxious. Well, what often starts to happen with people who desperately want to be less anxious is they start to become anxious about being anxious. Uh, so they start worrying about the fact that they worry so much. Or you see a lot of people who they'll get angry at the fact that they're always so angry or they'll start to feel guilty because they feel guilty all the time. And because we judge these emotions as bad and unacceptable, uh, we start kind of entering into this, I don't know, like this, this spiral where we keep just reinforcing that emotion over and over. And then, of course, like modern society, it doesn't really help, you know, in the fact that like if you're feeling a little bit insecure about your life or you feel like, you know, maybe you're not living up to your potential or whatever, the second you go on Facebook or the second you go on YouTube, you're just like bombarded with all these people like getting married and buying a new car and getting a new house and so there's this constant kind of reminder of, of you're not good enough or you're not, it's not okay for things to suck sometimes. And I jokingly say, I say, you know, the, the feedback loop from hell, I think it's, it's kind of reaching like a fever pitch in our culture. Like there's this constant focus on living up to these unrealistic expectations all the time that, that is like really harming us and harming our emotional health. And uh, I say that, you know, not giving a fuck, it's going to save everybody. Like that's the, that's the only way out of the feedback loop from hell. The, the only way out of the feedback loop from hell is, is being like, you know, I'm feeling really anxious today, but I don't really give a fuck. Like being anxious, it happens. That's just part of life. And I'm going to go on and do the things I need to do anyway. Um, it's releasing that judgment of your own emotions 
so that you don't kind of like fall into the spiral of just experiencing it more and more. So the idea of of not giving a fuck, you know, there's different ways that you can sort of interpret that. And, you know, some people listening might might have a totally opposite opinion in the sense that, you know, wow, no, I really think that you should give a fuck that you should care deeply. You make a really important distinction in the book between the idea of sort of indifference and being indifferent to everything versus not giving a fuck. Can you explain that distinction? Yeah, the first impression people always have when they hear, you know, not giving a fuck is that it's basically like this, this like really cool guy or girl who's just like kicking back and like day drinking at work or something. It's like, oh, uh, no fucks given. And it's a it's a cultural reference, you know, not giving a fuck. It's it's a funny kind of like a linguistic term that like is thrown around a lot these days. But um, one of the first things I try to point out in the book is they say, like, look, like what we're really talking about here is we're talking about values and meaning. I mean, I, I I've been jokingly telling people that, like, I really wanted to write a book about values and like what people choose to care about and how that matters. <laughs> but nobody would buy a book on values. So I decided to call it <laughs> to write a book about not giving a fuck. But it's it's basically it's kind of like a trick to it's like a Trojan horse to get the reader to start thinking about these deeper questions of like, what am I choosing? To, what am I giving a fuck about in my life? And like, why am I choosing to care so much about that? One of the first things I point out in that ch- in the first chapter is I say, you know, it's impossible to not give a fuck about anything. Like we all have to care about something. The problem is that most of us are either not fully aware of what we're, what we're caring about or where we're finding meaning or we're not consciously like we didn't choose you know, like our values were given to us or they were just picked up, you know, from pop culture or whatever. Um, like we're not consciously choosing what's actually important in our lives. We're just going along uh, with what everybody's always told us. So the real meat of the book is actually it's a question of what do you value and how did you come to your values? And are your values helping you or are they hurting you? Are they bringing more happiness and joy to your life or are they uh, creating more misery? So for somebody who's listening out here and and they're unsure maybe even what their values are or how to discover them, what would be a way to kind of take the first step on embarking down that path? The first step is to always look at what you emotionally react to. Your emotions are essentially just feedback mechanisms for what you decide is important in life. So if you are getting like blindingly angry that, uh, you know, your pizza came with the wrong toppings that is a reflection of like what you are choosing to find important in life. And perhaps that's something that you should like reevaluate <laughs> and decide maybe, you know what, maybe my pizza is not that important. Or often, you know, what I talk about is that people who are, are extremely emotionally volatile around like really superficial things. The problem is not that they're like superficial people. The problem is that they simply don't have something more important to give a fuck about. Um, I have a joke in the book about like an old woman who is like screams at a cashier because like they won't accept her coupons. And uh, that's true story, by the way. <laughs> uh, I know of the woman that that, that was based on. But it, it I remember when I saw that I was like what really kind of made an impression on me was wasn't the fact that, you know, this woman is just being really mean over some coupons. It was that, that this woman probably doesn't have anything else going on. Her life 
and that, that that is actually the problem. So the first step is always look at what you're responding to emotionally. And the intensity of the, the emotion is always proportional to basically like how many fucks you're giving or how important the thing is to you. So from what you've seen, what are some examples of negative values that people cling to that might end up sort of causing self-sabotage or unhappiness or whatever, you know, we're looking to avoid? You know, there's a couple big and obvious ones that everybody's probably going to be familiar with. You know, so one of them is impressing other people. Like we've, we've all learned from many different places that if you're trying to impress other people all the time, like it's just not going to, things are not going to go well. You know, even if you do impress them, it's not, you're not really generating any sort of like significant meaning or happiness in your life. So that's a bad value that a lot of people adopt. Another one is, you know, chasing material success. We all know, like we've all seen time and time again, that being fixated on, you know, just earning a lot of money for the sake of earning a lot of money doesn't necessarily bring a lot of joy and happiness to your life. There are a couple others maybe that aren't as obvious that I tackle in the book. One is feeling good or like pleasure or avoiding pain. I try to make a, a strong argument in the book that this like constant like need like needing to be distracted or pleased you know whether it's uh by just like opening 20 tabs on the internet and looking at like cat gifs or you know having a waiter at the restaurant who like does absolutely everything you say i think our culture is getting caught a little bit caught in a trap where we're starting to feel like very entitled and like pampered and that this is actually like a pretty harmful value to hold on to this idea that like you need to be experience like feel good all the time um, i think it's important to feel bad like feeling bad has it has an evolutionary purpose it has an emotional purpose it has like meaning like meaning and importance in our life requires there to be some sort of struggle or sense of challenge and so if we avoid that struggle and challenge then we're always just going to uh, we're just going to feel a lack of meaning and purpose the idea that it's important to feel bad. Tell me more about that and, and the concept that struggle creates meaning. So when people think about happiness, there's kind of like, there's two things that they're talking about. And these two things get confused a lot. You have pleasure and then you have fulfillment. And I believe like in positive psychology, they refer to pleasure and fulfillment. And pleasure is just stuff that immediately feels good. So um, if you want to experience pleasure, it's, it's actually very easy. Like you can just go buy a bunch of heroin and, you know, like go crazy. But just because you're feeling that pleasure doesn't mean you're actually bringing any sort of like lasting fulfillment or, or happiness into your life. In fact, oftentimes chasing pleasure does the opposite. You actually, you bring short-term enjoyment, but you sacrifice like your long-term health and emotional health. Fulfillment, on the other hand, is not always pleasurable. So fulfillment comes from a sense that you're doing something that's important. You're doing something that is a really significant use of your time on this world. And so a good example of something that's fulfilling but not pleasurable is say something like raising kids. You know, if you ask any parents of a newborn child, like how they're feeling lately, they're underslept, they're like constantly stressed out, um, their whole life has been thrown into disarray. It's not very pleasurable, but at the same time, it's one of the most fulfilling and, and meaningful experiences of their life. And so you get this kind of weird tension or this weird kind of like feeling both things at the same time. The interesting thing is that pleasure comes and goes kind of no matter what you do. 
you can always find pleasure very easily. It's the fulfillment and meaning that's very hard to find. And that's what sustains us over the long term. Like that's what keeps us feeling good about ourselves, feeling good about the world, feeling waking up with a sense of purpose. But to achieve that fulfillment, you need to be willing to feel bad. You need to be willing to struggle. Like there's no, there's no such thing as a meaningful thing that is just given to you. For something to feel meaningful and important, there has to be some sense of like sacrifice or that you went through something or that you overcame some sort of adversity. And so that's why I harp so much in the book about its personal growth shouldn't be about overcoming your struggles or uh, getting rid of your struggles. It should be choosing the struggles that matter to you. Like life is always going to be full of problems. So you should just choose the problems that feel meaningful and important to you. Because once they're meaningful and important, you're actually glad you have those problems. Like you're actually glad to like take on them and, and work on them and do something about them. You're not trying to avoid them all the time. I think that's such an important insight. The idea that there's no such thing as, as a meaningful thing that is given to you, right? You have to, in order to create meaning, you have to go through some sort of struggle. You have to go through some sort of challenge. You have to overcome some kind of problem or obstacle in order for something to truly be meaningful. If it's given to you, then it essentially, you don't really care about, doesn't have any true meaning to you. Yeah. You take it for granted. So going back to the example you used earlier of the old lady with the coupons, one of the concepts you talk about that I really enjoyed in the book was the idea that the mind invents problems uh, when it doesn't have any, any real problems or real struggles to deal with. Tell me a little bit more about that. That was actually, I heard this idea, it was, it was from an artist who said that, um, and it was funny because I think he was giving an interview that had nothing to do with like life or happiness. He was talking about something completely unrelated, but just as like an aside, he was like, he was like, yeah, when, when you don't have any problems to deal with, usually your mind like creates some for you. And I think that is, it's such a profound insight into our own psychology and I think that's something that we're experiencing a lot today. You know, it's, we all, you know, we all kind of make fun of like, you know, our, our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation is like, oh, when I was your age, I used to walk seven miles to school and, and all this stuff. But it's, it really is a natural facet of human psychology to, we adapt very quickly to what makes us comfortable and we begin to expect it. And when we don't receive it, we get cranky and we start, we start feeling entitled to it. And, um, I think this is, it's an important thing to understand about ourselves that we will always look, I mean, it, it's part of like our innate desire to have that meaning in our lives so that if we don't actually have anything meaningful to struggle for, um, we'll go around and start looking for struggles to give us that sense of meaning. And if we haven't picked something that is like actually, you know, worthwhile, I don't know, saving kids in Africa or whatever, like we'll start picking, picking struggles, like not being able to cash coupons at the grocery store or whatever. And so this comes back to this whole idea of like, you have a limited amount of fucks to give in your life. And one of the most important questions you can ever ask yourself is like, where are you going to allot those fucks? Where are you, you have limited energy to care about something. So like, what are you going to care about? Are you going to care about the coupons or are you going to care about something greater and more significant, more important? And, um, I mean, that it kind of is like the, I don't want to say like the ultimate question of life, but like, I, I just think that it's people don't realize how much 
that questioning of their own values like affects all this other stuff. It affects how you determine whether you're successful or not. It affects like where you seek happiness. It affects, you know, your relationships. That was kind of rambly, but <laughs> I hope it came through in there. <laughs> no, definitely. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. So you've touched a couple different times on the concept of entitlement. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about how people become entitled and, and what entitlement means to you. I believe that entitlement, so I have a very broad definition of entitlement in the book. You know, when you hear the word entitlement, you think of like spoiled brats who have like never had to deal with anything in their lives and they expect everything to be handed to them. That is certainly one type of entitlement. But what I see as entitlement and kind of the way I describe it in the book is this sense that you deserve to feel good. You deserve happiness without actually having to struggle for it. And this is this is one of the things that kind of worries me and I touch upon in different places throughout the book about about like conventional self-help and and the culture at large is that we're constantly being sold this idea that we all deserve to be happy without having to work for it. And that plays out in a bunch of different ways. It's not necessarily just the spoiled brat. You get a lot of entitled people who start to fashion themselves as as victims of everything around them. And so you kind of get this like victimhood entitlement. Um, you get a little bit of, you get entitlement in people who start exhibiting like a lot of addictive behaviors, you know, like maybe they get addicted to uh, partying five nights a week and, and the way they rationalize it to themselves is like, oh, well, I deserve to be happy. I deserve to do this, even though like they're losing their jobs over and over and they're not able to like pay rent and, and entitlement really, it just comes from this deep seated inability to handle adversity. Like it's the most important skill in life is really just to be able to sustain adversity and move on despite it. And if people are being taught over and over that, you know, adversity is not their fault, um, they don't deserve to have to deal with adversity, they deserve to feel good, um, then they never develop this skill. And so when it happens, they, you know, they're just unprepared. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
how do you cultivate the ability to handle adversity? I mean, adversity is going to happen no matter what you do. So I think the first step is to just accept that like shit happens. Things are going to suck sometimes, no matter what you do, no matter like I, I, one of my lines from the book is like a starving kid in Africa has money problems. Like Warren Buffett also has money problems. It's just that Warren Buffett's money problems are much better than the starving kid in Africa. And, and that's just true. It's, it's the problems in your life will never stop. They'll never go away. And so I think the first step is accepting that. The second step is then to take responsibility for those problems, regardless of whether they're your fault or if it's unfair or if it's unjust. You know, we're, we're all victims at times. We all get screwed over at times. And then we all deal with adversity at times. And it's, there needs to be like a, a kind of a radical sense of, of personal responsibility in those situations. I love both pieces of advice and, and they're both ones that, that I've definitely taken to heart that, you know, one kind of the acceptance that setbacks and failures are inevitable. And the second is taking total responsibility for kind of owning those problems and, and, and facing reality and, and figuring out what you're going to do next. And I think those are also really, really key lessons from, you know, a couple other books that you may have read as well. Uh, that listeners may want to check out. One would be The Obstacles the Way by Ryan Holiday. Um, and another would be Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. Both of those are great books that kind of dig into that specific idea. Yeah, definitely. So one of the other things you talk about is is the idea of instead of asking, what do you want out of life? You suggest that we ask a different question. What would that question be? Uh, the question is, what pain do you want to sustain? And this comes back to the idea that struggles, difficulties, they're always going to be present in your life. And so the the key question of living a better life, and I guess this is, you know, the subtitle of the book is a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. So this is this is that counterintuitive part. Instead of saying, how do I get rid of my struggles? How do I get rid of my pain? The question should be, what pain do I want? What struggles do I want? What difficulties excite me and invigorate me? You know, I've met a lot of people who <laughs> maybe they want to they want to start writing or they want to write a book, and they they come to me for advice and they say things like, you know, well, I try to sit down and I write, and then I get really insecure about it, so I delete it, and and then I hate everything I write, and then I just procrastinate, and it's been six months and I haven't written anything, and they they look to me for advice, and I always find it difficult to answer those situations because the same problems that they're avoiding or that they don't like with writing are the exact same problems that I love. Like I love sitting down for hours and just like meticulously picking at a paragraph I wrote or a page I wrote. Um, I get really excited about just like spewing thousands of words out onto a page and seeing what comes out. Like there's something about that that invigorates me. And actually in the book, I talk about how originally I wanted to be a musician and I discovered the hard way that I actually didn't want to be the musician because I didn't want to deal with all the problems and, and struggle that came with being a musician. You know, it's like I wanted to be on stage, but I didn't want to have to like deal with practicing and like hauling my gear around and like playing gigs and not getting paid for them. And, and so I inevitably quit. And so I think people look at, at the question of like what they want to do with their life too much in terms of like what rewards do they want. Instead, they should be looking at it in terms of like what struggles do you enjoy? Like what problems are you good at solving? That was one of my favorite stories in the whole book. The, the story of you kind of, you know, spending your childhood envisioning being a rock star, 
Um, and I think you even said it wasn't a question of if you would be a rock star, but it's a question of when. And then you sort of slowly had this realization that you might have loved the result, but the process you did not like at all. Yeah. And it was funny. It took me a long, like, so I stopped playing music when I was about 20 and I still held on to that dream for years. It wasn't until I was in like my late twenties and my business was doing well and I was loving writing. Like I always, in the back of my mind, I was always like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this for a while. And then I'm going to go back to music and like, dude, I'm going to finally start that band that (laughs) I haven't started in the last 10 years. (laughs) And, uh, it was this, this story I kept constantly telling myself and, uh, it finally, it was, you know, in my late twenties, I realized I'm like, it's just not going to happen. And it's not going to happen. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a sad realization. I mean, it was a little sad, but like, it wasn't, it didn't feel like a failure. It felt very liberating to realize that it real to realize that I actually didn't want it. I liked the fantasy, but I didn't like the reality. And it's important to um, understand the differences between those two things. And you used a great analogy in the book where you talked about the idea that it's the people who enjoy the struggle are the ones who actually end up achieving the result. And I think, I mean, you, you gave a number of examples, but one of them was just the example of, of athletes, right? It's, it's the people who obsess over practice and are constantly, you know, they want to get out on the field. They want to practice every single day, every single little nuance of their game. Those people aren't necessarily focused on the end goal of, you know, whether it's winning a Super Bowl or a gold medal in the Olympics or whatever it might be. They're focused and what they love doing is, is the struggle every single day of practicing and, you know, tweaking their diet and everything else. Yeah. And another thing I talk about in the book is this idea of greatness, this idea that like to be this great person, I try to like bring back, I don't know, humility (laughs) or like being ordinary. Like I, I, I emphasize in the book that it's important to embrace the fact that almost all of us are pretty average and ordinary at almost everything we do. And there's another kind of backwards law thing here where the people who actually do become huge successes, it's usually they usually still see themselves as very ordinary. I did an interview uh, a few weeks ago with um, a guy in the athletics and, and sports psychology world. Like he he works with coaches and actually with a bunch of Olympic athletes. He had some athletes at the Olympics. And one thing he told me is he said he said you know what's funny about sprinters like even sprinters at like the Olympic level said they all think they're slow. All of them like there's not he had never met like a single sprinter, even world class sprinters who was like, oh, yeah, I'm faster than everybody like they're they all think that they're not that fast and that they need to work harder to be fast again. And I find that absolutely fascinating. And you see this in in all sorts of kind of big figures that are held up, you know, like Michael Jordan, even when he was winning all of his championships, like every interview, he was like, oh, yeah, I need to improve. Like there's still a lot of holes in my game. I need to get better. Uh. You look at like people like Bill Gates, like they were, they were, even when he was the richest man in the world, he was like, oh, Microsoft can be doing so much more. Like we, we've really like missed some opportunities lately. And I find, you know, I think the outside world just looks at that and it's like, oh, he's humble. That's nice. You know, but it's, I think there's something deeper going on there. And that is this, these people, they, they don't buy into their own myths, like the myths that are built about them. You know, like society looks at these people and kind of builds a myth out of them. Says like, oh, this was a great person. He was like the greatest basketball player who ever lived or whatever. But the people themselves, they never buy into that myth. They never buy into this, this idea that they are somehow extraordinary in some way. Because if, if they did, then they would probably sabotage themselves psychologically. 
they would probably start becoming entitled and take it for granted and stop working so hard and um, stop being so curious and, and innovative. And uh, I've just, I've always found that really fascinating. And is that the concept in the book that you, you touch on, you call, I think the tyranny of exceptionalism or yeah, the tyranny of exceptionalism. Yeah. And um, I tie that kind of back into this, the stuff I was talking about earlier with like all the, with the internet and social media, like one topic I've been really fascinated in this year I touch on it in the book, but I've been writing about it more on my blog this last year is the fact that like the internet skews. So, you know, the internet provides so much information for so many people, but because there's so much information, we have to sort it somehow. And the way it's getting sorted right now is that typically like only the 0.1% most extraordinary information gets passed around. And in some ways that's great. Like you want to hear about the biggest, most important events, but the problem with that is that, you know, most of us spend all day, most of our days in front of a computer. And if all day we're just getting bombarded with like the most extraordinary information, the most extraordinary news, the most extraordinary events, both good and bad, it starts to create like warp our perception of, I guess, of the world, but also it warps our expectations for ourselves and for other people. And I see this a lot. I get So I get a lot of emails from my readers. And I see this particularly with like younger readers. I get a lot of like college age kids who email me and they seem to have these like bizarrely unrealistic expectations for themselves and for life in general. And I just find that it, I find it a little bit worrying that effect that it's possibly having on all of us psychologically. But um, I think it's something that needs to be talked about more and, and people need to be more aware of. Tell me a little bit about the concept of the disappointment panda. <laughs> it's a superhero, man. <laughs> so disappointment panda is a superhero I invented in the book. And his superpower is that he tells people uncomfortable truths about themselves. And um, he like literally goes door to door like a Bible salesman and like knocks on the door. And he like the person opens it. And disappointment panda is like, you know, if you make more money, that's not going to make your kids love you. And then he just like walks away <laughs> and like the person's like whole like reality gets shattered right then and there. Um, but disappointment Panda, he's kind of just like a metaphor for, I guess what I think what we really need these days. Like, I feel like, you know, all the classic superheroes like Superman and Spider-Man and Captain America or whatever, they were all created in the thirties and forties. And if you look back then it makes sense. Like, the world was completely falling apart economically, like World War II was going on. And so I think people kind of needed to escape into these ideas that there were these people who could like save anything and fix anything. Uh, I think today we kind of have the opposite problem going on where everything's amazing and easy. Like we all have flat screen TVs and can get groceries delivered, but like we're all, we're becoming very poor at handling our own problems or admitting or, or just dealing with adversity. And so I feel like if there was a superhero that should exist today, it would be somebody like Disappointment Panda, who's like, just tells people like the uncomfortable things that they're avoiding in their own life, like the problems that are not being dealt with, but need to be dealt with. One of the things I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, too, but it, you, you also talk about the idea that there are sort of biological limits on happiness and that suffering is from an evolutionary standpoint, sort of a practical and useful tool and not something that we should necessarily avoid. 
Yeah, I mean, pain evolved for a reason. It's like you pick the wrong berry and eat it, and it makes you sick, and you vomit for three days. Like, that's a useful, <laughs> like, it's a horrible experience, but it's useful. It's pain is biologically or like evolutionarily kind of developed as a feedback mechanism to, to keep us alive and keep us healthy. And I think it still operates that way. Like if, if something hurts you, it's not just happening for no reason. Like it's happening. There's something your body is trying to protect you or like push you into doing something else or changing something. And for that reason, I think people who, I mean, this is one of the big problems I have with all this kind of like positive thinking or what I call delusional positive thinking, um, which I separate from just like, there's like optimism, which is like, Hey, you know, I think things are going to go all right. And then there's delusional positive thinking, which is, you know, people who like lose their job and convince themselves that it's because they're too smart for all their coworkers. The problem with this kind of more delusional positive thinking is that if you just push all of your pain out of your consciousness, then you're basically eliminating some of the most important feedback mechanisms that your body and your psychology have for informing you of how to grow and how to change. And I think that's why growth, it just intrinsically requires some degree of pain and discomfort. You know, people talk about comfort zones and the way it grows, get outside of your comfort zone. I mean, that's one way to think about it. I think about it in terms of like, growth is painful. Like, the way you grow a muscle is it hurts. <laughs> like you go lift heavy weight until it hurts and then the muscle grows. You know, it's like it's the same for our psychology. It's the same for our, our sense of purpose and self-worth. Like it needs to hurt. You need to go stress it and it needs to hurt for it to get stronger. That's such an important takeaway. And, and one of the things that we've talked about previously on the podcast is the idea of embracing discomfort. And we, I think we have a whole episode about embracing discomfort and how to sort of expand your sphere of things that are comfortable and how to push past sort of the resistance points where you feel yourself getting really uncomfortable and why that's such a critical skill set for growing and improving. Totally. One other question I had for you, and this is, this is something that I personally struggle with. Tell me about how you deal with setting boundaries and, and the importance of saying no. Ah, uh, so I, there's a chapter in the book, it's called the importance of saying no. And it's, it's actually, it's the relationships chapter, but basically I define like a healthy relationship as two people who are both a willing to say no to each other and b willing to hear no from each other. And what's interesting is I think most people are comfortable with one or the other. They're not comfortable with both. And I think to have healthy boundaries in a relationship, you need both people to be comfortable with both. So there's a lot of people that are comfortable saying no, but they can't hear no. They flip out and get angry and start blaming the other person. Then you have other people who are comfortable hearing no, but they're afraid to ever say no because they're afraid to, that they're going to impose or that they're going to um, hurt the other person or whatever. And the trick is to, to, to be able to do both because a relationship is only as healthy as the two individuals that are in it. And if one of the individuals in the relationship is not able to stand up for themselves, define what they need and clearly communicate it without blame or judgment, without like, you know, holding the other person responsible, um, then they're not, they're not going to get their needs met. And it's going to devolve into kind of this like toxic codependent thing where each person is reliant on the other, um, for their happiness, which is not good. Um, boundaries, essentially it comes down to, taking responsibility for your own emotions and your own problems and not 
not making your partner responsible for them. And then your partner also taking responsibility for their own emotions and problems and you not taking responsibility for theirs. And this sounds like very like kind of cold and unromantic on the surface, especially with all like what I call the Disney narrative of relationships. You know, it's like, oh, I'll do anything for you. Oh, my God, I'm so in love. Uh, That is actually not very healthy. Like that level of taking on all of your partner's emotions and, and taking responsibility for them as your own. What you need is you need two strong, autonomous individuals who are constantly and consciously opting in to the relationship together, who are expressing their emotions unconditionally, doing things for each other unconditionally, and honoring each other's feelings without being responsible for them. Like that is ultimately like what creates, like that's when I talk about boundaries, like that's what I mean, that kind of like that line of responsibility between two people. And if you can maintain that, I think most relationship problems don't resolve themselves. And I think one of the interesting things about that concept is that, you know, you, you use the example of a romantic relationship, but I think it actually can apply in a lot of contexts, friendships, business relationships. Uh, even in many ways, you think about business negotiations. There's a ton of kind of cross applications of, of that framework and that thinking. Yeah, you can definitely have toxic and codependent friendships. You can definitely, definitely have boundary issues and family relationships but in business as well, um, I mean, I think one of the things that business does well is that the fact that you have contracts is that is essentially like a boundary negotiation. It's like when you enter into like a business deal with somebody, you sit down and hammer out the contract and it's clear. It's like, this is this person's responsibility. This is this person's responsibility. And that is clear. Um, unfortunately, you know, we're human. So a lot of times we get lazy or cut corners or just don't pay attention to agreements because we're emotional and, and base a lot of like the, what we say and do on our emotions. And so it doesn't always play out that way. And so you do get a lot of these kind of like toxic situations where people are like forfeiting their own responsibility or forcing, blaming somebody else for like their own emotions or their own sense of failure. So what is one piece of homework that you would give to people listening to this episode in terms of sort of concrete steps that they could take to implement some of these ideas in their lives? One thing would be sit down and write down all the painful things that you enjoy, (laughs) which uh, that like scrambles a lot of people's heads. But um, if you can sit with that and actually come up with some things, it's pretty illuminating what you and the funny thing is, is that a lot of a lot of what people enjoy like they don't even realize that it's painful. Like they don't even realize that most people, you know, take like, it's like one of my best friends, he's an amateur bodybuilder and like he'll go spend three hours in the gym, just like wrecking his body, lifting weights. And to him, it's like very therapeutic. And it like, I imagine for him, it like doesn't even really occur to him that what he's going through is a lot of pain. Um, But it is, it is, it's a pain that he enjoys. And I think we all have something like that in our lives. Or if we don't, then that's, that's probably a red flag as well. Where can people find you online? Uh, my site's markmanson.net. Uh, check out, there's a link at the top for best articles, so you can start there. And um, the book is called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, Counterintuitive Approach to Living a Good Life. It's at all stores, retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everything. Check it out. And I can definitely say uh, the book is awesome. Uh, I really, really enjoyed reading it. There's a ton of great lessons in there. So I definitely recommend listeners check that out. We'll also have a link to Mark's website and the book on the show notes page. uh, So you can get that as well. 
Well, Mark, thank you so much. This has been a, a fascinating interview and uh, I loved having you on here. Thank you for being on the Science of Success. Thanks, Matt. Great being here. Thank you so much for listening to the Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. If you want to reach out, say hi, tell me what you think. I read and respond to every single email that I get from listeners. You can email me at matt, that's M-A-T-T, at scienceofsuccess.co. That's matt at scienceofsuccess.co. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. And as a thank you to you for being awesome, I'm giving away a $100 Amazon gift card to one lucky listener. All you have to do to be entered to win is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. And remember, next episode, we're giving that gift card away, so be sure to enter the contest this week. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.